Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All right, gather around, ye millennials, because the olds have something to talk to you about. Um, the song Cruel Summer, which is very apropos for the time we're living in, just FYI is by Bananarama and not Taylor Swift. Can somebody back me up on this? For sure. Bananarama, not an ice cream flavor, by the way. But would be a good one. As the resident millennial, Taylor Swift is not my first association with that See, song. You know? Who's Taylor Swift? <laughs> I was about to say there's hope, but no, there's not. <laughs> Listeners might think Ben is joking, but you never can tell. <laughs> so Shane, is it a cruel summer because you're back from vacation? Uh, I feel like I never really went on vacation, but uh, yes, it's cruel that I am now back from vacation. I will say that. Coming back from vacation, feeling like you were never on vacation is perhaps the definition of a cruel <laughs> summer. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Cruel Summer Edition. We should probably have renamed this the Bananarama Edition, but I think if people saw that popping up in their podcast feed, they would really think we'd lost our minds. They'd be very confused. It is also a Bananas Summer. Oh, that's true. Yes. I think we're going to do banana and cruelty puns through the whole show today. (laughs) I don't know how many I have. You don't have like a stockpile of, of banana of puns? banana puns? I, I, like, we'll see how it goes. Can I tell you a secret? Bananas, not a fan. I d- really? Just nev- never really been my favorite. No, I like them in things. Like I love banana milkshakes. I love bananas foster. But just like a banana, it, like as a kid, it was as a snack. It's just, no, it's just, no. It just never, never appealed to me. I will say I like bananas and I like Bananarama. But I think I like Bananarama more than I like bananas. I like bananas just fine. I'm just pro-banana overall. I just want to add that we are being cruel to the listenership by prolonging this discussion. Let's just just get on with it. I was going to talk about everything I learned about Bananarama on Wikipedia in the past three minutes. But we're going to skip that over. I'm here with my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Coffin Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi. We were off last week. I hope everybody got some time some to breathe, get outside. And to everybody who was tweeting at us, where's my rational security? I have a message to y'all. Listen to the end of the show, because we <laughs> did announce that we were taking the week off. And if you just didn't get that far in the show, look, I mean, that's your problem, dude. Usually we do housekeeping at the top of the show, Ben, as well. Well, you know, you went on vacation. <laughs> you left it in my hands. <laughs> I did it don't, my don't way. Don't guess the don't don't backseat host Shane. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough, Ben. You you, you do you do guest hosting your way. 
You do it. Maybe you shouldn't even have mentioned it and just left everybody like lingering in doubt about what happened to No, him. I want to just make people feel bad for, for, for vacation shaming us. Fair enough. On the podcast this week, shootings in Kenosha and Portland raise new concerns about violent protests in the U.S. Former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, you remember him, is not yet free of the justice system. And a prominent Russian opposition leader has been poisoned with a nerve agent. Happens a lot in that part of the world. Uh, let's start with the news on the the shootings. Um, uh, just to quickly bring people back up to speed, although no doubt listeners have been following this closely. Uh, in Kenosha, uh, there was a shooting of was it was it three people who were killed or two? You all will correct me by a young man who it was I think two, was, and then one was shot in the arm. Two right, and one was shot in the arm. Uh, this was following, of course, the shooting uh, of Jacob Blake, uh, unarmed black man, by police officer. Officers there in Kenosha, uh, violence broke out in the streets, and a young man who I guess we would associate with, uh, you know, sort of a pro-police, pro-Trump, far-right, whatever we want to call it, we'll get into the labels, has been arrested in that shooting. In Portland, uh, we saw uh, the shooting of a uh, someone associating with a far-right group, possibly by protester associated with a far-left group. So uh, we obviously have now the specter of people on both ends of the spectrum here uh, shooting at each other. And Tammy, you know, I want to start with you on this. I think that the protests in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and other black people that began earlier in the spring has been largely peaceful. It strikes me now that what we're seeing with these two shootings in in Kenosha and in Portland is something new and very dangerous. And what that is, is this idea that violent opportunists, radicals, whatever you want to call them, are now shooting at each other, that this is civilian violence, civilian on civilian, not people directing uh, violence uh, at state authorities, of which, of course, there has been, I think, you know, a fairly small amount and certainly not rising, you know, traditionally to the level of, you know, shooting. How do you read this? And are you concerned that this is a harbinger about where the protests are going as they go into their fourth month and as we get closer to Election Day? So, Shane, I, I don't think it's a harbinger of where the protests are going. I do think it is a potentially very dangerous moment in the history of American society. <laughs> and we need to take a look at that and understand what it is and um, see what, if anything, we can do to halt that trajectory. Um, but I think it's important to start with some clarifications we don't know quite what happened in Portland. Um, the Portland authorities have not announced, you know, who they think perpetrated the shooting of this right-wing activist who was part of a, a, a truck rally slash counter-protest, I guess. But what we've seen is right-wing activists, including armed individuals, a lot of them in Kenosha, and now we're starting to see them in other places as well, confronting protesters who are supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. And defenders of these right-wing activists, these agitators, I would call them, um, and the president and the president's allies are trying to equate um, rioting and looting that has taken place in the wake of some of these police shootings and on the edges of some of these Black Lives Matters demonstrations and equate that to 
this 17 year old bringing a gun to a counter protest and shooting three people in Kenosha. And those are not the same thing. Those are not the same kinds of violence at all. And they're particularly not the same kind of violence when you think about where this might go. Okay, the Black Lives Matter protesters are protesting the police. They are protesting state violence against civilians. And as a result of that pattern of state violence, they don't trust the police to protect them from counter protesters or from people who want to do more than counter protest. And they don't trust the police even to let them demonstrate freely. And that creates a real challenge when these counter protesters and agitators show up. Because even if the police want to do the right thing by preventing these opposing groups from converging, and frankly, in Kenosha, it's not at all clear that the police are trying to do the right thing and keep people separated. But even when the police want to do the right thing, protesters don't trust them, won't listen to them, and won't cooperate with them because of the nature of the protest that's underway. And what I think is really dangerous about this is that we see in other social movements, in other parts of the world, and in the history of the United States as well, that movements that can begin nonviolently, that can be majority nonviolent, can still be overwhelmed by violence. When nonviolent protesters are targeted by violence, there are always going to be some who will break discipline, if you will, and respond with violence. And we've seen that throughout these Black Lives Matter protests. So the more counter protesters instigate violence, generate violent clashes, the more they will transform the profile of the Black Lives Matter protests into more violent protests. And of course, that serves the president's narrative. It might serve a certain electoral outcome. But to me, the most concerning part about it is that it serves a dynamic of escalating violence. Susan. Yeah, so I, I certainly agree with Tammy that this feels like a very dangerous moment in American history and, and, and one that we should be really uh, especially focused on. You know, this is not that difficult of a thing for the government to get right at a rhetorical level, even though it's a, it, it's an incredibly complicated, complex moment. Um, and that's that we expect both federal and state governments in moments like these to unequivocally condemn violence of any kind, rioting, all of these things, uh, while also supporting the right of individuals to protest, to protest peacefully, speech rights. And in fact, it, this is such a familiar script that whenever the you know, sort of po politicians actually do resort to it, it, it often comes off as sort of trite. Um, and that's a reason why in this moment, it's, it's pretty shocking. Um, I guess it shouldn't be to see how badly the Trump administration is doing in discharging this basic function of trying to reduce tensions, trying to get back to a more stable place. And we've even seen Kellyanne Conway sort of go on television and openly say that they believe uh, violence, they believe civic unrest is beneficial to the president's reelection. Um, I, I think there are sort of a few things we need to be especially focused on in this moment. Um, and one is whether or not uh, this is going to add further 
another pretext uh, for some form of federal intervention. Um, so we've seen and, and talked on this podcast a lot about uh, Trump, u- Trump using um, and the Trump administration uh, using protests uh, near and aimed at federal buildings as a reason to, uh, you know, send federal officials, federal officers, uh, in some cases, right in, in Washington, D.C., uh, deploying uh, the, the D.C. Uh, National Guard, uh, sort of in the Lafayette Square. Um, so one, whether or not this is going to um, to allow the Trump administration to get away with escalating those efforts and escalating efforts that, that I think it's fair to say really are aimed at uh, fueling chaos and creating uh, uh, and sort of fueling the, the optics of violent confrontation and of cities not being safe. Um, you know, I also think it's really notable um, that the federal government hasn't even pretended to remain neutral on this question. Um, so we had uh, Chad Wolf uh, went on Tucker Carlson and whenever Tucker Carlson said, you know, why aren't Black Lives Matters leaders being investigated under RICO and treated like like the mafia heads that we, that they are? Um, acting DHS Secretary Chad Wolf um, said, and I believe this is a quote, um, I know they're working on it um, in reference to DOJ. And so, right, sort of um, being flagrantly political. We saw the president of the United States once again completely inappropriately weigh in on the guilt or non-guilt of an individual who stands accused of a very serious crime um, in suggesting that this right-wing aligned teenager um, who stands accused of murdering two individuals, uh, you know, that that it was simply self-defense. And and sort of the the right-wing ecosystem has rallied around uh, this individual's, uh, you know, cause and their legal funds, right? And and it's all part and parcel of sort of fueling uh, the culture wars. Um, And I do think we need to take seriously the question, uh, not just of what happens between now and the election, um, but but how, uh, what post-election violence might look like, you know, whether or not these individuals uh, who support the president um, and appear to be traveling to locations in order to instigate, sort of instigate violence or, uh, you know, factions of otherwise peaceful protests that um, that are engaged in property destruction uh, or violence against other individuals, um, whether or not they are able to take sort of a, a powder keg situation, especially uh, if the election, if there is some period of uncertainty following the election as mail-in ballots are counted um, and and really use that to become a spark and, and, you know, for the United States to see, you know, really significant and and consequential violence. Um, So, you know, these are all things in which, um, you know, we should expect cooler heads to prevail in the government. Um, We should expect to see strong partnership across the aisle, strong state and federal partnership. And and even to say that in this moment um, is so plainly ridiculous. It's so plainly obvious that that isn't going to happen. And um, and, and that itself is just a remarkable statement of uh, sort of the, the degradation of really even core, basic, uh, previously commonly shared hint principles in the United States. Yeah, I I agree with all of that. I I think we have gone and we have all grown up and lived in a pretty unusual period in American history in which basically political violence was exceptionally rare you know in the late 60s and up through the early and mid 70s we had a lot of political violence in this country and you know it ranged from anti-civil rights violence 
to uh, a fair bit of left terrorism bombing activity. And, you know, starting in the late 70s, political violence just kind of diminished in the United States. And we have all like had this luxurious period of living and expecting that the amount of violent political activity will, you know, will not not be zero, but be really near zero. And I think we may just be coming to the end of that period. And we may be in a period in which passions are sufficiently high and polarization is great enough that we are actually going to live through a period in which there is uh, not inconsiderable amount number of people who, you know, do things from, uh, I mean, the, the low grade end of it is protests that become riots, right? And the higher grade element of it is people driving in to confront those protesters with guns. And then there's a really higher end of it, which is, you know, organized uh, violent activity, terrorism activity. And I, I do think we are, you know, in a period in which we have a president who is in a pretty systematic way encouraging some of it and promising to crack down on, uh, violently crack down on other components of it. And we have as well a a media operation. uh, And if you haven't watched any of Fox News' coverage of this stuff, it really is kind of wall-to-wall bloody shirt stuff, you know, that is very clearly designed and intended to stoke people's fears of violence on the one hand, and thus precipitating and encouraging certain types of violence on the other. I don't know what it is that tamps that down, except, you know, something like presidential leadership. And, you know, you can hope for a different uh, vision of it. And I think Biden is trying to kind of model a different leadership uh, model. But there is a real difference between being the president and being the shadow president on stuff like this. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we've all talked a bit about both the the sort of political and electoral effects, as well as the the broader and deeper concern. And there's no question that what Trump's trying to do here is make people scared enough that they vote for the authoritarian order over democratic, quote, chaos, unquote. And that's, you know, a standard part of the authoritarian playbook. So let's not be surprised by that. But it strikes me that we needn't be and we really shouldn't be resigned to a period of political violence, even if Ben's historical analysis is correct, that we've been on a sort of vacation and this stuff is not unprecedented in American history. It is unprecedented to have a federal government that is taking such a cavalier attitude toward this type of violence. The federal government in the 1960s and 70s was, you know, very mobilized against Puerto Rican independence terrorist movements and environmental terrorist movements and, you know, uh, the weathermen. And we know we're starting to see now former DHS officials from the Trump era say that their efforts to scale up activity to to monitor threats from domestic right-wing extremist groups were stymied or slowed by the prevailing political winds at DHS. So that is new and it's scary. 
And it seems to me that it is quite possible for us to recognize that we're on the precipice of this and to insist on government and civil society taking steps to pull us back from that precipice, reinforce the norm of nonviolence, reinforce the norm of equality under the law, regardless of your political perspective, and draw the necessary distinctions between forms of public protest that are disorderly. Um, including, you know, very disciplined nonviolence can be quite disorderly and domestic terrorism. Uh, and I think that that is a pretty bright line. We just need to draw it. Well, in a maybe small victory this week for actual law and order, a federal judge, it has been ruled, can in fact scrutinize the Justice Department's decision to drop its criminal case against former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. This was a decision from the full U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. They ruled that District Judge Emmett Sullivan can, in fact, question uh, prosecutors' highly unusual, unorthodox, irregular. What ad- what other adjectives have we used to describe that decision, guys, on this podcast? Uh, so interesting. <laughs> Bananaramas. <laughs> Did you say interesting? Cruelty. <laughs> So the judge can actually do what judges do, which is rule on motions that come before him in a court from the opposing sides. Susan, I was struck most of all, I think, uh, by this line in the court's opinion. I'm just read it briefly. They said, and this was a this was an eight to two decision. Was it? Did I have that right? It was. Oh, yes, oh, eight, no, to. eight to two. We reach the unexceptional yet important conclusion that a court of appeals should stay its hand and allow the district court to finish its work rather than hear a challenge to a decision not yet made, a policy the federal courts have followed since the beginning of the Republic. Talk about why this decision is, in fact, unexceptional and yet important. Yeah, so I think it's worth um, doing a brief recap uh, for those who might be losing track as to how the hell we got here. Um, so I thought I did enough. Go ahead. <laughs> just I, I think in terms of sort of the procedural background sure. of the yeah, courts, yeah, yeah. Sort of, it's useful understanding, right? Which is, of course, as you said, Michael Flynn had pleaded guilty to lying uh, to uh, to the FBI. Uh, this was the period before he went to sentencing. Uh, Bill Barr and this you know, sort of eleventh uh, hour decision orders DOJ to to drop the charges. Uh, So this is back in May. Uh, And so at this point, uh, Judge Sullivan uh, basically says, I'm not going to rule on this motion. I want more information. Um, Flynn's attorneys, he also appoints uh, former Judge Gleason uh, to sort of help him investigate. And really what what we're talking about here is investigating the Department of Justice and how they came to make this decision, uh, you know, to to drop these charges in this highly sort of unusual moment. Um, Flynn's lawyers had then appealed to the D.C. Circuit. And so in June, the D.C. Circuit ruled uh, a 2-3 two, two, panel, uh, ruled basically ordering Judge Sullivan saying, you have to dismiss the, the case against Flynn. Um, Judge Sullivan then uh, asked for an en banc review. And now the D.C. Circuit sitting, um, sitting the, the, the full court sitting en banc, has come back and reversed their, uh, reversed the June decision. Um, and so this is, you know, this is an unusual uh, sort of change 
chain of events. And yet the ending is like preservation of the status quo. It's basically standing for the proposition that uh, the federal judiciary is not just the rubber stamp uh, or the functionary of the the Department of Justice, Um, that these motions, motions to drop charges uh, actually have content and that a judge is entitled uh, to look at those motions and to look at the reasons um, uh, and to satisfy him or herself, uh, you know, as to the the integrity of the proceedings before their court. Um, And so I think the remarkable thing is not that the court ruled this way, but that the D.C. Circuit previously decided to intervene. And that statement of, you know, this is a policy that federal courts have followed since the beginning of the Republic. um, That's not a statement meant for Judge Sullivan. And it's not a statement meant for Michael Flynn. It's a statement meant for their colleagues uh, and the two members of the D.C. Circuit um, that broke that principle by actually intervening and ruling in Flynn's favor. Um, Now, for anybody who's sitting at home saying, finally, Michael Flynn is going to get what he deserves and they're going to march him off to jail and Judge Sullivan's going to refuse to allow DOJ to drop these charges and is going to sentence him anyway, um, that's not going to happen. I think it's it's incredibly unlikely. Uh, Michael Flynn is actually not going to serve any jail time. And at the end of this saga, I do think Judge Sullivan is likely to to grant this motion. Um, But what this ruling really is about is not not necessarily holding Michael Flynn accountable, that ship has sailed, but instead holding DOJ accountable um, and allowing the fact finding of what Bill Barr did, what the Department of Justice did, uh, sort of allowing that fact finding to continue. You know, we'll see what new information might uh, might come out. I don't know that it'll necessarily be more significant than we've already heard, um, but but really, it is about sort of defense of this baseline principle and proposition regarding the integrity of the federal courts and a slap back to um, a really, really aggressive and irregular DOJ that is not concerned in the slightest with perceptions of um, apolitical enforcement of the law um, and saying, look, um, you don't get to come into a court and lie to a federal judge and, and engage in this behavior and have us just rubber stamp it and say, well, nothing we can do here. And, and it's such a minimal principle, it's hard to celebrate the idea that at least uh, that has been defended, but um, it it, it is at least some uh, hopeful sign that at least parts of the federal judiciary um, really are pushing back against this this really unprecedented throw in every every adjective we've already used a million times, you know, moment and and, and actions of, of the Trump administration. Susan, just a very quick question, something you said interested me before we turn to Ben. You know, the judge can look into what happened, as you said, you know, kind of you know, lay bare the decisions of the Justice Department. Should people be expecting that the judge is going to do something like an investigative report when this is all done? Or will it look more like a ruling in which he may recap and give you know, his assessment of how he reads things went? I, I honestly don't know. Um, Judge Gleason uh, has already sort of given his report to Judge Sullivan. Um, you know, Ben, I don't know if you have a guess as to um, as to what Judge Sullivan might do from here. Um, you know, my expectation is not that we are going to see some big giant report. Um, my expectation is we will now see uh, Judge Sullivan issue a very very lengthy ruling that resolves, and this is my guess, uh, that ultimately dismisses the charges uh, and 
and uh, grants DOJ's motion, but spends many, many pages um, explaining, you know, sort of why we should be upset and concerned about what DOJ did um, and and potentially, you know, having some sort of administrative sanctions against uh, lawyers that he that he finds, um, you know, came into his court and lied to him or knowingly allowed others to lie to him. So I think there uh, may be both more and less going on here than uh, Susan's very good summary of this may lead some listeners to think. And the reason is not that I think that anything that Susan said was wrong, which I don't, but that I I think there's more give at play in uh, what Judge Sullivan might think he's allowed to do here than is obvious. So a few things. On on the point that there's less here than seems, the panel decision ordering Sullivan to throw this case out was so ridiculous and so, I don't usually say this about federal judges, it was nakedly partisan. And it's too outlying judges on that court, uh, one of whom is genuinely eccentric. And their uh, ruling from, I guess, back in May, you know, just turned on its head years and years and years of the D.C. Circuit's work in these what are called mandamus cases. And, you know, the I don't without getting into the details of that, these are writs that are granted exceptionally rarely and under very unusual circumstances. And the idea that you would issue one before the district judge had even ruled on a motion before him because you don't like the direction of the questions that he's asking and the amicus briefs that he's asking for is it's just weird stuff. And so the idea that the full DC circuit got together and said, you know, without saying anything about the merits of this situation, you got to give the the poor judge a chance to rule on the motion before him, before you can come up and ask us to do anything about it. And so I don't know whether that says anything about what they expect of Judge Sullivan and I don't know that it stands for anything particularly about, you know, their attitude to what Bill Barr did here. What it stands for is the idea that a motion before a district court can't be taken up to the circuit court before the district judge gets a chance to address it. And so that's the sense that this may be less and particularly less of a batting back of the Justice Department than you might think. But then there's this other sense where there might be more here going on, which is that I'm a little bit less convinced than Susan is that Judge Sullivan is just going to dismiss this thing. And the reason is that since this case, uh, this issue started percolating, there's been a lot of historical research done about the, the rule in question. And it does all seem to suggest that the rule anticipated that the judges would have more discretion than the Justice Department allows. And uh, some of that historical work is quite persuasive. And so I actually wonder if Judge Sullivan is mad enough and if he's outraged enough by the stuff that Susan has rightly described, the machinations of Bill Barr, 
he may have a little bit more latitude than people like me and frankly, people like Susan had assumed uh, a few months ago that a district judge has in dismissing the case. And I think the consequences of that is that you could have a somewhat protracted set of hearings and he could do everything from issue a long opinion saying they did the following blah, 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 70 pages of anger, but I'm constrained to grant the motion to dismiss to doing something that I think would put the president in the position, particularly if he loses reelection, where he realizes that if he's going to end the Flynn case, he's actually got to do it with a pardon, not with a with machinations through the Justice Department. That does raise an interesting question about the timing, doesn't it? Right. I mean, presumably, I think we all presume that if Judge Sullivan were to rule that, no, you can't do a take back, you're going to have to plead that the president would just step in deus ex machina style and pardon Michael Flynn and it would be done. But he has a fairly narrow window of time potentially to do that. I'm also fascinated. We only have a couple minutes left in the segment, too, by you know, what we think the role for Mike Flynn is <clears throat> after this all over. I assume he has been keeping his mouth shut for the most part. He pops up on social media here and there. I think he took a QAnon oath in a video recently. But that the, large, the reason he's been kind of underground is because this proceeding is still going on and he probably doesn't want to piss off the judge more than he already has. But, I mean, do you guys think that he becomes any kind of political standard bearer or – kind of heroic figure in the media and, you know, something, you know, a talking head plus after this is all over? Well, I I actually don't think Trump will feel constrained about pardoning him. Whether he wins or loses, I, I think he'd be happy to pardon him. And certainly if he loses, he has no reason not to go ahead and you should pardon, just pardon him. him, even if he does get to withdraw the plea, right? <laughs> yeah. And I actually think that in some ways, Flynn has a better afterlife as a political hero if he gets pardoned right. than if he doesn't. But honestly, I mean, aside from pardoning him to look good, Flynn was not in the administration that long. He probably doesn't have that many stories to tell that are to Trump's disadvantage, and he and Trump have no other relationship than, you know, the favor Flynn did him by granting him the credibility of a retired general during his first campaign. So I don't know that Flynn becomes like a Trumpist hero in the long run, but God only knows. We shall see. We shall see. I have absolutely no segue for the next segment, you guys. How do I go? How, how do I go from disgraced former national security advisor? to Russian government. Oh wait, I do have a segue. <laughs> now that you now that I think of it. <laughs> it's good that you executed it so gracefully. <laughs> maybe you had a segue but you forgot that you met with it. Maybe. Maybe or maybe I just wanted to be graceless. <laughs> oh, nicely done. Maybe got it. <laughs> wait, what did you say? Maybe maybe I I forgot that I what? <laughs> You forgot that you met with it. You forgot that you talked on the phone with your Oh segue. shit. Yeah, what that's about? it. <laughs> I'm just, I'm uh, throwing like, you know, these are, these are softballs. That was good. I'm so a little rusty, you, you know guys. it was four whole years ago, Shane. It's like a million news cycles ago. Ooh, goodness gracious. I wonder um, what Sergey Kislyak is up to right now. <laughs> I hope he listens to this podcast. 
That would seriously be maybe my favorite fan. Uh, Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, it turns out, was poisoned with a nerve agent very similar to the nerve agent Novichok. This is according to a German government spokesperson uh, today on Wednesday, citing, quote, unequivocal evidence of the presence of this substance. Uh, Navalny is a fierce critic of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Uh, He got sick on a plane traveling from Moscow to Tomsk in Siberia uh, on August 20th. And at the time, listeners will probably recall, aides said they were convinced that he had been poisoned. Um, The Russian government, of course, has a long history, I should say, Vladimir Putin's regime specifically of poisoning its opponents. Um, listeners will probably remember Ben famously, I said, most famously, intelligence operatives from the GRU using Novichok uh, to poison a former Russian military officer turned spy for the British, Sergei Skripal, as well his his daughter Yulia in the town of Salisbury in England. That led to an extraordinary rebuke by the U.S., uh, notable and in, including for the fact that it occurred in the Trump administration, uh, and was joined by other nations. There was a massive diplomatic expulsion of about 60 Russian officials from the U.S., undoubtedly a good number of them intelligence officers themselves. My question for you to start is, do you think we're going to see a similar kind of outrage over the poisoning of Navalny? I do not, perhaps unfortunately, but I think the Skripal poisoning raised the degree of international outrage that it did in large part because it took place in a foreign country, uh, specifically in, in, in the UK, murderous regimes trying to kill people on their own soil generally does not raise the kind of diplomatic problems for them that doing it, uh, you know, sort of assassinations abroad do. And so I think a lot of countries will tend to regard this as Putin being Putin, which, however horrible it is, you know, is not traveling to the UK in order to kill people who, uh, or a person who had actually been actively traded to the UK as a part of a spy swap. Look, Alexei Navalny is one of the most courageous dissidents and democracy figures in the world right now. He has been a rare thing, you know, which is a, a principled democratic critic of Putin who has remained in Russia, who has sought to organize, you know, politically, uh, not simply been a, a, a political critic, but actually, you know, sought to, you know, form political parties, form political movements. And, you know, in, in many ways, he is the heir philosophically to the the Russian dissidents who brought down the Soviet Union and had a period in the early 90s where they were functionally the the sort of excited liberal government, you know. And so it is, first of all, not especially surprising that as Putin has done with some of the others of, of that ilk, he has eventually tired of Navalny and decided to kill him. And or that somebody around him has, you know, it's never clear whether Putin orders these things himself or whether he merely people merely do it to please him. But the uh, use of Novichok uh, clearly indicates state action. This is not stuff that's available to the average person. 
And Novichok, the, the, the way the Putin regime has used this material, as well as radioactive material and sort of other kind of esoteric forms of assassination, is designed not merely to kill somebody, but to make a statement in doing so. And it's one of the, one of the very unusual things about the Putin regime, that they deny doing these things, but they also do it in a kind of florid a very dramatic fashion so that it is both denied and undeniable. And they want it that way because they want to uh, strike terror and they want to send a message, even as they're denying that they're sending that message. And by the way, that is an old thing. I mean, you know, uh, for the Russians in particular, you know, it's not, there were a lot of ways to kill Trotsky. You didn't have to put an ice pick through his head. And of course, there's the famous uh, case of the Bulgarian dissident who, you know, was uh, jabbed in London with a, a ricin-tipped umbrella, uh, which, of course, led to his uh, death. And so this is an old tactic that uh, the Russians and the Soviets before them used. And of course, it, it is made all the more macabre and bizarre by the simultaneous floridness and denial of it. And I mean, I think all we can say at this point is wishing Navalny a recovery and uh, hoping that the international community takes it a little bit more seriously than I fear that it will. Good on the Germans for making the information public. Yeah, I mean, it, Ben's last point there does, I think, uh, highlight that the German government is in a bit of an awkward position now because on the one hand, the German government is um, concerned about Putin's efforts to undermine the European Union and democracy on the eastern fringe of the European Union. On the other hand, the Germans feel a degree of energy dependency on the Russians and have been loath to kind of escalate tensions between the EU and Russia. But now Merkel has this Russian opposition leader, you know, half dead in a German hospital by a poison that clearly came from somewhere in the Russian government. And so she has to respond strongly. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how she plays this. But the other interesting kind of geopolitical question I think that emerges out of this is, you know, what does this tell us about Putin's regime and the state of Putin's regime right now? The fact that this is now known to be a Novichok poison does tell us that it came from somewhere in the apparatus of the state, as Ben said, but that doesn't mean necessarily that Putin ordered it. It could just be that Putin was given a heads up and was like, sure, or that Putin let it be known that he wouldn't mind seeing this guy sidelined before the elections that are being held on September 13th that Navalny was, you know, organizing opposition around. So, you know, maybe Putin just wanted Navalny out of the way through this electoral period and somebody in the regime decided that meant let's get rid of this guy once and for all. Won't the boss be grateful? And so, you know, you see the the kind of Kremlin watchers in two schools of thought on this. One is that this poisoning shows that Putin is in charge and he's ruthless and you know, this is the hard the hardness of the Russian regime. And then you have a kind of counterintuitive argument, including by Tatiana Stanovaya at the Carnegie Endowment, saying that 
this is actually evidence of the way in which the Russian regime is fracturing, that people are able to act within the regime with more independence. And it's worth remembering that Navalny, you know, because his primary um, message to the Russian people was about the corruption of the Russian elite, there's a really, really long list of guys who see him as a mortal enemy for exposing their uh, ugly secrets to, to the Russian public. So I don't know if we'll ever know for sure which of those two theories to believe in this particular case, but I do think it's an interesting issue to keep an eye on. Is this a regime that is strongly consolidated and therefore feels total impunity going after its enemies? Um, or is this a regime that is starting to disintegrate and Putin may not have as much control as he thinks he does? Well, and that raises just a quick question I had too for you, Tammy, which is, you know, in, in any normal functioning administration that is cognizant of the decades of history between the United States and Russia and before that the Soviet Union would react in, in revulsion to, to this poisoning and would use it as an opportunity to remind the world that we stand with democratic forces in Russia and with people like Navalny and and affirm that he represents not just democratic interests in Russia, but our interests too. So my question is, if, if there is a Biden administration, do they come in sort of locked and loaded to respond, not just to this, but to the other you know, instances of political violence by Putin that have not been responded to forcefully? Do they kind of come in saying, we have to make some kind of big show from the get-go to, to let put Putin and the world on notice that you know there's a new sheriff in town and we're returning to a norm? I think that's a great question because a Biden administration will actually have like a rich array of potential targets to use to send this message. So, you know, is it Putin that they want to confront first? Is it the Saudis? Is it the Chinese? Is it the North Koreans? Is it the Iranians? Like, take your pick, man. You know, the Trump administration has done such a good job of alternately blustering and cozying up to these guys that anything will look shockingly decisive, I think, from an, a new administration, if indeed we have a new administration. When it comes to how to play the situation with the Russians, I think there are a couple of things that come into play. One is the frayed relationship between the United States and its European allies. Anything we're going to do on Russia, especially on issues like this, you know, these are things that we want to be wall to wall with our European partners on. And so I don't think we would do it without first doing a round of consultations and seeing where they are and what they're willing to do. Ben. Yeah, I just want to say I I think it would be a priority of the Biden administration coming in, assuming there is a Biden administration coming in to send a very strong, very sharp message right away to Russia and, and Putin in particular. I wouldn't be at all surprised to hear things in the inaugural address. I really would, wouldn't be surprised if, for example, uh, there's a very clear statement early on that the president, the new administration is not looking to meet with the Russians, particularly not in in a one-on-one -on -one outside of multilateral contexts, uh, I think the message will be loud and strong and immediate that the days of the U.S. tolerating and winking at Russia, Russian misbehavior and apologizing for it 
are over and we are reestablishing in conjunction with our allies a very traditional sense of deterrence of Russian behavior. All right, let's move on to object lessons. I will go first. Um, I want to flag for folks uh, another book that is just out. Uh, This is Blood and Oil, Mohammed bin Salman's Ruthless Quest for Global Power uh, by two of my former colleagues at the Wall Street Journal, Bradley Hope, who is co-author of the book uh, Billion Dollar Whale, which readers may have heard of, uh, and Justin Sheck, who is a a terrific reporter who's reported widely from the Middle East and has been writing about Saudi Arabia since 2016, uh, and who I got to saddle up with a bit when I was at the paper as well. Uh, So it looks great, very timely. If you are Saudi watchers, if you are MBS watchers, if you are just in for stories about crime, 'er ne'er-do-wells, check it out, pick it up. Two great reporters, Blood and Oil. Ben. So my uh, object lesson is connected to our last segment. Last week when Navalny was raced to Germany uh, for treatment, the New York Times ran an amazing op-ed by Nadia Tolokonikova, who is one of the two founders of Pussy Riot and who did this, uh, you know, that famous famously was imprisoned by Putin for playing uh, in in the church in Moscow or St. Petersburg, I forget which. And the piece is very moving in general. It uh, involves a previous poisoning by uh, the Putin regime of Talakotikova's partner and her experience of going to Germany to the same hospital that Navalny was in with uh, Piotr when he was on the on the point of death and her kind of reliving that experience. She and Navalny are also friends. But what really struck me about the op-ed was the last paragraph, which when it came out, I tweeted an image of the last paragraph and was inundated. I tweeted it because it had American resonance. Uh, and was inundated with people who thought I was uh, being misleading because I, uh, it's a paragraph about Russia, uh, which I took as a as suggestion that you know she had really hit home. So the paragraph reads: Our president has only just recently had the law changed so that he can stay in power until 2036, but his program of repression didn't start out this blatantly. These things happened in pieces, bit by bit, small acts, and each one may seem relatively benign at first, perhaps bad but not fatal. You get angry, maybe you speak out, but you get on with your life. The promise of our democracy was chipped away in pieces, one by one. Corrupt cronies appointed, presidential orders issued, actions taken, laws passed, votes rigged, It happens slowly, intermittently. Sometimes we couldn't see how steadily autocracy crept in like the coward that it is. The piece is called, I'm an activist in Russia. I can't believe what my life has become. And it is by Nadia Tolokonikova, and I think very worth your time. All right, Tammy. And now for something completely different, because (laughs) it may be the almost end or the ending stage of a cruel, ugly, miserable summer, and we may be heading into a cruel, 
ugly, miserable fall of dirty election campaigns and domestic polarization and um, God knows what else, including continued pandemic. But one of the things the end of summer does bring us is monarch butterflies. Yes, it's true. We are, we here in the Washington area, are a way station on the great monarch migration of North America. And as the monarchs, that is the fourth generation of monarchs migrating south to spend the winter in Mexico, they fly through D.C. And if you have a garden, as I have a garden, you may get to see them over the next few weeks. I opened my front door this morning to ponder before we taped our podcast and found a beautiful monarch sitting on a bush right outside my front door. So my object lesson is a photograph of my local monarch visitor, and I hope that it will bring all of our listeners just a little bit of relief from this cruel, cruel summer. I love that. I hope I get a monarch in my garden. That would be nice. Do you need like a butterfly bush to do it? They do like butterfly bushes. It's true. Okay. Well, yeah, but do they like bananas? Oh, my God. Well, I don't like bananas, although we have them in this house because the other half likes them. Susan. My object lesson is a birthday. It was yesterday, September 1st, Lawfare's 10th birthday. So it's in Happy birthday to you. (laughs) Um, A whole decade. And, you know, what a wild ride. And... So I just wanted to take a minute to to celebrate our 10th birthday and uh, say we are so proud of uh, what the site has accomplished and all of the people who work on it. And maybe someday soon we will be able to actually have a birthday cake and see each other in person to celebrate. But for now, I raise my virtual glass uh, to Lawfare. You guys should have a surprise party for Lawfare on Zoom. It really wouldn't. It'd be hard to surprise ourselves. (laughs) You should pick like one of the lawfare interns and have a surprise. Maybe you should throw a lawfare surprise party on Zoom, Shane. Yeah, dress it up as like a really stodgy meeting that everybody has to attend. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Well, if we do that, we'll be sure to invite everyone. Uh, But for now, that's the end of the podcast this week, you guys. Rational Security is, of course, a production of the 10-year-old Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find rational security party hats, streamers, uh, trick candles, like the kind you can't blow out. Those are all on sale at um, lawfarebirthdayshop.com. Wait, does this mean that Lawfare is about to become one of those snotty middle schoolers? I feel like we have maybe two or three years before... (laughs) I think we've always been one of those snotty middle schoolers. <laughs> you were born this way. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can also find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please do leave a rating and review. It helps us out by others finding the show. And we love to hear your guys' comments on it, so please keep them coming. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. The show is edited and produced by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Donald Trump. Trump and his rendition of the Bananarama 1987 chart topper, I Heard a Rumor.
Oh, please. <laughs> that fits. Honestly, I don't even get the reference. Okay. To be clear, I don't know that the banana rama song. Clad plane load of, of agitators. <laughs> that rumor? Sure. People are saying. <laughs> you see? That's how it goes. Everyone is saying. Everyone is saying. I heard a rumor. I heard from Banana Rama. I heard from Sophia Yan that bananas are terrible. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Happy Labor Day. Bye-bye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.